Good morning. For those of you don't, who don't know me, I'm Colin. As Karen has says, I'm married to Marianne for 45 years, father of two sons and proud grandfather. I've been part of this place since uh, 2006. And uh, I've found myself over recent months in conversation with people saying things like, you know, you know God loves you, right? And you know he loves you right where you are. But actually, he doesn't want you to stay like that. Because just like the kingdom of God, he wants each one of us to be growing up and stepping out and being people who are doing his work, my feet on the ground, in the neighborhood, in the city, in the workplaces that we live in and work in. So I was thinking about, you know, God is love. And I was thinking that Father loves you and me just the way we are. But he does not want us to stay like that. We're called to be constantly growing, or should I say growing up? You know, I, uh, I sat in my lounge room a few weeks ago on a Sunday morning when Paul shared his me first message as new pastor of Awaken, and he was still in Nelson. Do you remember it? What was his message called? Sons of God, grow up. And, you know, that can seem like you're being admonished, told off, but it wasn't. It was an encouragement and it was a challenge because each one of us is called to be moment by moment growing in him. And the funny thing about growing up as a person of faith is this, that unlike things in the natural, and if I, you know, it's not improper for me to mention the words growing pains. Many of us will remember growing pains, you know, from our adolescence. Some of us might have condemned um, confine them to the, the dim, dark past. But they say growing pain can start when you're about nine and can go through to when you're about 25 or 26. You know, it's quite a long time to be uncomfortable in pain. Um, but, you know, when God calls us to grow up, he, he doesn't cause us pain. He brings challenge at times. He brings correction at times. He brings a word that will change our lives forever like that. You know, and each one of us who know Jesus, who claim the grace that has been extended to us, we are called to be Christ bearers. Little Christs. And we're part of his plan for allowing heaven to touch earth or bringing heaven to earth. Now, I want you to use your imagination for a minute. I know it's autumn, and I know we've had a cold week, but I want you to imagine that it's this cracking, sunny summer's day. And after church, you're thinking, you know, it'll be a good day to take the kids down by the river, just spend some time playing in the water and hanging out. So after church, you have your lunch, you pack up the kids, you head down to the river or maybe to the beach, whichever, whichever works for you. For me, it's the river. And you head down there, and you're sitting on the riverbank, and you notice while your kids are playing down there in the sand and with the stones and what have you, that there's an ice cream truck parked up about 10 meters behind you. Pretty good, eh? So you think, you know, the thought of an ice cream is suddenly very, very appealing. And so you let your little one know that, hey, I'm, I'm just going over there for a minute. I'll be back. And off you go to the ice cream, ice cream truck. 
keeping that ever close eye on your child who's 10 meters or so away. And you get over there and you hand the money to the man for two ice creams. And you head back down to the riverbank or the beach to where your little one is playing. But as you bend down to give them that treat that you've bought for them, you see that their mouth is full of sand. Ha! No one here has ever had a child who's gone to the beach and put sand in their mouth, have they? All the mums and some of the dads are smiling. Yeah, that's good. So they've got a mouth full of sand. So here's a question. Do you love your son or your daughter, your child, with sand in their mouth? I mean, it's a bit of a silly question, really, isn't it? Hopefully the answer is still yes. But does having sand in their mouth make them any less your child? No, I don't think so. So the next step is hopefully a pretty obvious one. And it's not for those of you who jumped to the, oh, well, I'll just eat both ice creams. It's not that. Because you love your child with sand in their mouth, you refuse to leave them like that. Because you've actually got something so much better for them. And I'm not clenching my fist. I'm holding an ice cream, okay? See? I can see a nice big ice cream. So you reach into your bag and you take out your water bottle and you wash out their mouth. And why would you do that? Because you love them and because you've got something so much better for them. And have you ever thought about this? The Father actually offers to do the same thing for us. You know, he washes it off and he says, spit out the dirt, I've got something so much better for you. So he cleanses us over a journey of lifetime often of the stuff that is effectively a barrier to us becoming more Christ-like. You know, our attitudes, our behaviors, our complacency, that sort of stuff. And anything else that Holy Spirit might have just popped into your head. You see, we probably don't enjoy that cleansing, do we? And sometimes we might even opt to keep the dirt rather than enjoy that which has been offered to us. I could eat dirt if I want to, leave me alone. We can shout that, um, that's fine, but we miss out on that which is being offered to us. So we can choose not to have something, to have the ice cream or whatever the gift is that's being offered, but the loss is ours if we choose not to accept it. So as I've said, God loves you and I just the way we are, but he refuses to leave us that way because he's actually got a much better offer for us and if we are going to be people who continue to grow up in him, we must be willing to allow Father God to help us to get the dirt out of our mouths so that he can give us that which is so much better for us. In Luke 3, we find the record of Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist. And straight afterwards, Jesus is led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. And after that period of time, he returns to his hometown of Nazareth, Nazareth in Galilee, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And his family, his friends and neighbors, they're actually pretty anxious to see him because news about him and about the miracles that he'd been doing had spread throughout the whole countryside. And he was actually something of a bit of a celebrity. You know, I don't often think of the word celebrity when it comes to Jesus, but in the area in which he lived, the people were going, oh, look, that's him. He can do this for us. He can do that. 
And you know, on the Sabbath day, Jesus went to the synagogue, as was his normal custom, and he stood to read. I imagine there was a bit of an air of expectation and a sense of anticipation about that which would be shared. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, as we see in Luke 4, 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And because it's quite a, quite, quite a well-known scripture, we probably realize that that scripture that I've just mentioned from Luke is actually from Isaiah 61. And that prof prophetic word was fulfilled in Jesus. But then in the synagogue that day, he said something that blew the socks off. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your sight and in your hearing. You know, they went ballistic. Matthew, Matthew actually records their response in Matthew 13, verses 54 to 57, where it says this. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't his sisters here with us? Where did this man get these things? And they took offense at him. Just as we sometimes can take offense when we hear truth that we don't want to hear. But you know, why would they choose to take offense? If we look at what Jesus actually said to them, we can begin to see that they likewise had dirt in their mouths and God wanted to help get it out. Now, if you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah 61. I like the rustle of pages and the of apps. Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoner. Do you notice there's a bit of a list there? And the first in that list people mentioned are the poor. The word poor can convey, convey all sorts of things. And I believe it's referring to something much deeper than just financial poverty here. I believe Jesus was actually referring to their moral and their spiritual poverty. In fact, the word for poor is actually the same word used by Jesus in the first of the Beatitudes in Matthew 5.3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, those who see their need. The second type of person mentioned in that passage is the prisoner. Now, there were no prisoners in Nazareth at the time, but the word prisoner in this context was used for prisoners of war. And Jesus saw how these people he knew so well were actually under spiritual bondage and prisoners to things like money, guilt, and a whole host of other things. You see, Satan had a stronghold in their lives, 
and they didn't even know it. The third type of person Jesus mentioned is the blind. There were not only those who were physically blind present, but as 2 Corinthians 4.4 says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And I would actually put a little bit in there and say, actually, and sometimes believers too. For they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In fact, Jesus used the same example again to explain Paul's ministry to him, uh, which is recorded in Acts 26, 17 to 18. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. You see, Jesus was showing them the blindness that they had to their own need. They had dirt in their mouths. And not only did they choose not to spit it out, but they were blind to the fact that it was there. And the fourth type of person mentioned in this passage in Isaiah is the oppressed, which means broken in pieces, shattered and crushed. You see, Jesus came to those whose lives were squashed by life's crushing load and who couldn't see a way out for themselves. And so Jesus, in one fell swoop, announced his ministry and he proclaimed his mission. I have come for your spiritual poverty, your spiritual bondage, your spiritual blindness, and your spiritual brokenness. I have come to heal your hearts. I have come to make you whole. I have come to give you life. And so what did they do with this offer? This good news? They took offense as I read earlier in Matthew 13, 57. But why? You know, it, it's sort of weird, really. In the verses before that, they had agreed amongst themselves that Jesus had wisdom and miraculous powers, but they chose to ignore this. I mean, were they offended because he was a local boy? Was he offended? Were they offended because he was a local chippy son? You know, was it because of the attitudes or behaviors of his brothers and sisters? I mean, who knows? But in, in, in my mind, the questions sort of go like this. Why would you choose to turn away from someone who wanted to help? Why would you reject someone who cared so much? Why would you push away someone who could heal you and make you whole? And sadly, in some ways, I still don't know the answers to those questions, but I do know who the answer is. He is Jesus. But, you know, I think we can possibly see, to some extent, those attitudes in the community around us. You know, maybe in the people we know even. Possibly even in ourselves at times, where we choose to go, ah, that's enough. I, I, I'm happy here. Leave me alone, Jesus. I'm comfortable. I don't need to change anymore. Perhaps they were just afraid of something that they couldn't understand, or perhaps they didn't want to understand. And perhaps they had to face some things about themselves that they didn't want to face. Perhaps they had yet to come to the end of themselves in order to come to a true beginning in Christ. 
You know, one of the most successful programs for helping people with chronic addictions has been the 12-step program. You may have heard the term. You may have even seen the words. But all 12-step recovery programs essentially start the same way. Step one is actually about choosing to take a step. That means getting off your blessed assurance and actually getting up and taking a step. It doesn't matter how big or small the step is, but taking a step. I admit to myself that things are seriously wrong in my life. You know, I've created messes in my life. Perhaps my whole life is a mess, or maybe just some important parts. I admit this, and I quit trying to play games with myself and with others. I've realized that my life has become unmanageable in many ways, and it's not in control anymore. I do things that I later regret doing, and I tell myself that I won't do them again, but I do, and again, and again. And I keep on doing them in spite of my regrets, my denials, my vows, and my cover-ups. I admit the truth of where I am. I'm really powerless, and damn it, I'm broken, and I need help. You see, step one is simply about brokenness. And I wonder if any of us can relate to this. Step two is actually a step of hope and of faith and of realization. And it's a big step towards God. These days in the 12-step programs, they refer to God as a higher power, your higher power. But that's okay. But in essence, it says, in spite of all my failures in my own life, all the broken promises, the hard feelings, the disappointments, the failures, the destructive behavior, offenses that I choose to hold on to, hatred, anxiety, depression, or guilt, there is still hope. There's hope because there is a power greater than myself. I'm incapable of doing myself, and I finally realize that. I need God's help. So we could actually say that step two is actually about honesty. And step three is a step of letting go. Don't worry, I'm not going to go through all 12. <laughs> step three is actually a step of letting go. And we could perhaps say it like this. I have made a conscious decision to turn my will and all my life's circumstances, no matter how much of a mess they are, over to the care of a loving father. So step three is about letting go. But church, let me say this very clearly. You don't have to be an alcoholic or any sort of an addict for these things to help. In fact, these things, brokenness, honesty, and letting go, are, I believe, the first essential steps any of us must take if we're to grow in our walk with God. And actually, the people of Nazareth knew that Jesus had performed miracles and could help, but they let their self-sufficiency, their fear, their shame, and their pride get in the way. And so Jesus, who obviously knew all this, <laughs> chose to bring two illustrations to share with those people at the time. He reminded them firstly of the widow in Zarephath in the time of Elijah. 
in 1 Kings 17, 7 to 16. It tells how the prophet Elijah encountered a Gentile woman, that is, a non-Jew, gathering sticks to start a fire so she could bake a meal for her son and herself. And so, as she put it, we could meet, eat it and die. For this was during the reign of Ahab and his infamous wife Jezebel. Hmm. And we know about them, don't we? You know, according to 1 Kings 16 and verse 30, they did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. So God sent Elijah to punish Israel for turning from him. And Elijah said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Now Ahab, King Ahab, chose not to listen. Funny that, when we're hearing truth that we don't want to hear, choose not to listen. So God sent Elijah to the top of Mount Carmel, where King Ahab gathered his 850 prophets of Baal, who were trying to call down fire and light the fire on the altar. I won't delve into that, because that's a whole story in itself, but really, 1 Kings chapter 18, hugely worth a read. 1 Kings 18. But back to the story before us. Elijah says to this Gentile woman, this widow and her son, who are about to die in the famine, don't be afraid. First, make a small cake of bread for me. From what you have. And then make something for yourself and your son. The Lord God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain in the land. So she did as Elijah told her. I mean, that was a huge step of faith. Did you hear what he said to her? First make me something so I can eat. And then, at a watch left, make something for yourself. She chose to exercise faith in believing him that he was true to his word. For in that day, the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. And now, the good folk of Nazareth that day knew exactly where Jesus was going with this. You know, if they wanted Jesus to help the poor, the blind, the prisoner and the oppressed, all they needed to do was trust him and trust in him, just like the widow chose to trust Father God to provide for her needs. But guess what? <laughs> they didn't get it. So Jesus then chose to remind them of the story of Naaman. Naaman was the commander of the army of the king of Aram. Naaman suffered from leprosy, you know, you can find that story in 2 Kings 5, 11 and 12. And Naaman was told that there was a prophet who could heal him. So he came to the prophet Elisha for healing. But Elisha chose not to go and see him. He simply sent his servant with a message. And the message was simply this. Go dip yourself in the river Jordan seven times and you'll be healed. And Naaman, as the word says, went off in a rage. 
But then wise men spoke to him, and he humbled himself, and he did as he had been instructed. And guess what? After dipping himself seven times in the muddy Jordan River, he was healed of his leprosy. And after hearing these two stories, the fine people of Nazareth had heard enough. I mean, it was bad enough to be told that they were poor in spirit, blind to the things of God, prisoners to Satan, and that their lives were in a mess. Now they were being told that they were less spiritual and less wise than the Gentiles. I mean, you know, it was a bit too much, eh? And Luke 4, 28 and 29 tells us their response. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. And they got up, they drove him out of town, they took him to the top of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off a cliff. But drastic, eh? I mean, we're talking about murder, potential murder, serious injury, manslaughter. Pretty drastic. Okay, Colin, so I get all that. But how in the world does it apply in helping us to grow up in our faith walk and relationship with Father God? Well, I'd say this. It's all too easy to have the attitude of the people of Nazareth and say, I'm fine just the way I am. You know, I don't need to look to God anymore. I don't need to give up any more of my will into his hands. I'm doing okay. I encourage you to check your fear and your pride and your shame and your mask that you might be wearing that says, I'm okay. And inside you're broken in pieces. Do you remember step one of the 12-step program? Admit to myself that something is wrong in my life. And if I'm going to grow up in my walk with God, I must admit that I can't do it without him. I must choose to take a step. And like the widow, we need to learn to put all our trust in the Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Do you remember step two? In spite of all the failures in my life, all the broken promises, the hard feelings, disappointments, destructive behavior, hatred, anxiety, depression, guilt, or shame, there is still hope. There's hope in the fact that God is so much bigger than any of our problems. And like Naaman, we can't let our pride stand in the way of allowing the Father to help us. Remember step three? I have made a conscious and willful decision to turn my will and all my life's circumstances over to God. Our church, you know, politely, whether you've been a person of faith for six days or 60 years, the principle is actually the same. You will never grow in your faith walk if you don't think you need to. You know, if you are comfortable, complacent, cruisy in community, you will never grow. You know, every day, every week, every month, God's working in my life and showing me, I'll use the Greek word, kraptos, you know, dirt in my life that he wants to replace with his treats and the goodness of him and all of the better things that he has for me. 
And you know what? The biggest hindrance to receiving the blessing that the Father has for me is me. I am the biggest hindrance to receiving from God. And dare I say that you are also your biggest hindrance to receiving from the Father? I stand in the way. My arrogance, my pride, my self-sufficiency, my unwillingness to ask God for help and then do what he asks. It keeps me from growing in my walk the way he wants me to. So every day I have to remind myself that God loves me just the way I am. But he refuses to leave me that way. And I think, you know, as people of faith, we were given a bit of a clue that sometimes there's a bit of hard yards in our journey. There's a bit of hard work. In Luke 9, 23, we are invited to take up our cross daily. And I don't imagine picking up a cross cross. And taking it after us is sometimes going to be easy. Sometimes it's going to be hard work. Sometimes we're going to have to dig deep and go that extra mile and say, yes, I'm staying the course you've called me to. Because without this, I am nothing and I have nothing. But only in you can I find wholeness. Only in you can I grow. Only in you do I have hope. I want to close with a, a couple of illustrate or an il illustration and something that a, a friend of mine posted on Facebook a while ago. In a large church, a former burglar knelt beside a Supreme Court judge at the communion rail. Some churches still have them. And after the service, the judge walked out with the pastor and said, did you notice who was kneeling beside me at the communion service this morning? What a miracle of grace. And the pastor replied, it's truly a miracle what God's done in that man's life. The judge then in a humble voice said, actually, I was talking about me. You see, when that man met Jesus Christ in jail, he left his life of crime and chose to receive all of the hope and all of the healing that Jesus could offer. He knew how much he needed help. But look at me. <laughs> I was taught from childhood that I didn't need anyone's help. I went to church. I took communion. I graduated from university. I became a lawyer and eventually a Supreme Court judge. I was sure that all I was all I ever needed. And I didn't need anyone else's help. But kneeling beside that man today, reminded me that just like him, I'm no better than him, for I too am a sinner in need of God's grace. You know, sometimes we get in the way of, of coming to or giving our lives fully to God. Because God will never bully us into it. He simply places choices before us. And we choose whether we pick them up and step towards him, run towards him, or step away. But you know, if you and I are going to be people who grow in our faith, we've got to be willing to be people who ask God to help us to change, to get the dirt out of our mouths, so to speak, to become more and more like Jesus, to receive all the promises and the delicacies or good things that God has actually got for, got for us, 
For as we receive from him, then each of us individually are in a better place to give out of that which he has placed in us to the poor, the blind, the oppressed, and the prisoners that we see in and around our city, in our neighbors' homes, in the supermarket, in our workplace, or wherever we happen to be. And there are steps that each one of us can choose to take as we become people who passionately pursue the presence of God and carry that into a dark and hurting world, bringing his light and his hope and his care and his love for people, those who are yet to meet him. And as we choose individually to allow God to continually work in us, we become more the church that Jesus died to bring into the world. So what does this church look like? My friend Kristen, he's a church leader in Tauranga, he posted this wee gem on Facebook. The church is a people among whom Jesus is the absolute and uncontested central focus. Good start. The church is a tribe being equipped by the genuine fivefold ministry, fueled by night and day prayer, motivated by the urgency of the hour in which we live, moved by the Father's heart for the nations, and taking radical action to see the gospel of the kingdom preached in every corner of the earth. Church is not some club to belong to, nor is it simply a 90-minute scripted gathering on a particular day of the week. You see, the church is God's vehicle for reaching a world, the world. A Jesus-loving, people-honoring, power-filled, kingdom-releasing community of ordinary individuals engaged in an extraordinary work at an unprecedented time in history. Such a church will leave a mark on the pages of history. And if ever there was a time for a church like this to emerge. It's surely now. Amen.